Welcome to Founders First, a show about mental health and entrepreneurship and how to build resilience to stay stronger, happier, and be more successful. You can engage more in the conversation by going to the App Store on your phone and searching Founders First Community. Today, on our very first episode, we're speaking with Eric Severinghaus. Eric is a serial innovator and entrepreneur who's helped create products with hundreds of millions of dollars in sales and businesses with hundreds of millions in revenue. He's been featured in Fortune, Forbes, and the Wall Street Journal. He's also an endurance athlete who's completed two Ironman triathlons and, ready for this, successfully summited Mount Everest. The list could go on and on, but as you'll hear, there's two sides to every story. Eric, I'm going to share a quote from you, which I think is amazing and I think really frames the conversation that we're having here today. You said, climbing Mount Everest is the second hardest thing I've ever done. The second nearest I have ever felt to dying. The first is being an entrepreneur. You've had all these successes, but they haven't come easy and we're eager to hear more. So Eric, thanks for being with us today. We're ex we are so excited that you're here with us. Now, it's, it's my pleasure, and I can't tell you what an honor it is to be part of this. I'm so excited about what you're building with Founders First, and I'm just thrilled to be a part of it. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. So, Eric, you've got this thing I've seen. You call it the, what is it, the anti-biography? Yeah. <laughs> Will you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Aaron, you were kind enough to, to sort of paraphrase the standard biography, right? And, and for any of us that are invited to go speak to crowds, there's a little bit of this racket that happens. Um, which is that, you know, they always ask us for our biography, right? And we give our highlights of all the greatest things that we've done in our entire lives. And it makes us sound really impressive and, and really fantastic. Um, and, and, you know, we do this because people want us to sound impressive so that people will buy tickets or they will join virtual events, even, you know, if they're free or, or whatever, right? Um, and and one, of, one of the things that I realized, and I think you and I are going to get into this, is there's tremendous survivorship bias in terms of who gets invited to go speak to entrepreneurs. And, and so almost everybody who gets to speak to entrepreneurs has things like nine figure exits and, and, you know, unbelievable successes, which are really statistical anomalies. Like they always never happen. Um, but, but we as founders or, or entrepreneurs who get invited to these things are inundated with stories from people who have, you know, this sort of success. And, and so it creates this, um, I, I think, false illusion in the stories that we internalize as entrepreneurs that this is just kind of what happens. Like if I go start a company, all these other guys got to nine figures, so certainly I'm going to as well. And, and so to counteract that, um, it really, I, I did this initially as, as a cathartic thing for me to do because when people would introduce me, I always kind of felt a little bit like a fraud. Like not that any of those things that you said isn't true, they all are. But, you know, nowhere in my biography does it say that I've basically been laid off twice. Um, nowhere in my biography does it say things like, yeah, I climbed Mount Everest, but sometimes literally I can barely pick my daughter out of her crib um, because I have a herniated disc that, that ends up hurting me so badly. Like when I go through the, the, the sort of real life that is Eric Severinghouse, I've learned far more from the challenges than, than I and the failures, candidly, than I have the successes. And so, um, so I, I created this anti-biography, um, which was really inspired by, if anybody's ever been to Bessemer Venture Partners, they have their anti-portfolio, um, where they talk about all the amazing investments that they missed out on 
And the implication is like, how could we have been so dumb that we decided not to invest in Hewlett Packard or Google or, you know, some of these other amazing companies. Um, and, and I think it humanizes the company by, by, by showing that, that, you know, they, they have an entire story around them and it's not all, you know, they don't always make the right decisions. And um, so anyway, I, I started the anti-bio really more than anything as a point of catharsis. Um, as a way to say like, yes, all these things are true, but there's a lot more to Eric and, and there's a lot of really bad things as a way to hopefully humanize myself to, to founders and entrepreneurs. That listen, And so that's, that's kind of the story behind the anti-bio. I love that. I saw you and I were there together in, uh, at the Hive event in San Francisco. Was it two years ago now? And Tom Chi from Google came on stage and he was introduced with this amazing, you know, introduction with his background from being involved in these innovative projects at Google. And he comes on stage to this huge applause and then he kind of pauses for a second and he goes, that's all of that is true. And also an hour ago, I was sitting in Palo Alto reading a book in, you know, a chair in my living room and petting my cat. And he's like, that's who I actually feel like is that person when I walk up here on the stage. So, so. Yeah, Nassim Taleb has an interest. For anybody who reads Nassim Taleb, he's got this interesting way of thinking about this, that he refuses to receive honors or awards. And he refuses to have anything in his biography um, that is not his Uber uh, uh, rating. So, so, so his, his idea is that virtue is sort of ascribed by those people, you know, the people that are driving him around, right? The, 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 the sort of, it's, it's all about how does the lower, and I don't want to say lower class, but, but how do people without status, like, like how do those people perceive you? Are you being a good person to those people in your life? versus are you sucking up to, to all the, the rich intellectuals? And I think that's a, that's a really, uh, it, it's a more well-rounded way of thinking about ourselves and our biography and how we come across. I love that. And that's a huge part of what we do in Founders First System and the Founders First community is trying to help each other and, and all of us together bring out these voices about the whole person and who we are. So I think this is a great framing of the conversation today. So I want to mention to everyone joining us, thanks for being here and we welcome questions during the discussion. So put them into the chat window and they'll be queued up by our moderator and we'll pick those up after a couple of questions that I'll kick us off with here. So uh, we really are eager to hear questions that come from everyone that's here, from our founders and entrepreneurs and folks just listening along today. So thanks so much for being here. Eric, we all have these challenges as entrepreneurs, like facing the huge task of building our companies, um, one of the things we talk about in Founders First is the importance of managing ourselves, our expectations, and our own psychology. One of the things you talk about in your book is how we all have to manage that negative voice we have in our heads that can drive us a little bit crazy and can drive us to exhaustion if we let it. And you talk about how the hardest part of climbing Mount Everest wasn't actually reaching the summit. So tell us what was the hardest part of climbing Mount Everest? Yeah. So, so, so maybe to set the entrepreneurial context and then I'll get into the Everest story. Um, I, I always worry that we'll get into too much of just talking about Everest stories. Right. So I, I want to make sure to contextualize it appropriately as much as I love telling the war stories yeah. from the entrepreneurial perspective. What I think is most important is understanding that it's, it's something I didn't understand when I was starting companies. I mean, Aaron, when, when you were starting, I contact and I, you were kind enough to invite me to tag along with you. It never occurred to me that that would be an eight-year journey. That felt like a couple of years before we would be rich and famous, right? And and when I was starting another company with your help called Main Brain School, that ended up, you know, effectively being a zero exit. It was kind of the same thing. I didn't think it would be a long journey. I thought it would be an, an easy kind of exit, right? And and every time I, I think as entrepreneurs, we're naturally optimistic. We go into these journeys thinking, ah, th this problem is so obvious. I'm going to go solve this problem. Everybody will realize I have an amazing solution to an obvious problem. And then people will just shovel hundreds of millions of dollars at me 
the way they clearly did like Mark Zuckerberg and then I'll be trying to decide which yacht I want to go sail around the world on, right? And that's like, it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but like in my head, that was kind of the order of events. And like, maybe it's two years, maybe it's three years, maybe it's four years if things go really wonky. Um, in actuality, what we find is that all of the research shows that it is almost, there are, the only exceptions are the ones that movies get made about in terms of companies exiting in less than six, seven, eight years. The average time to a meaningful exit's about eight years, depending on which particular space you're in. Mm -hmm. and, and so it speaks to the importance of, of optimizing, not on the quick return, but on resilience for an eight-year journey. And, and as I oftentimes say, the tools of entrepreneurship are useless if the carpenter's having a mental breakdown. Like, like the reality is if we haven't primed our minds for the endurance part of the journey, we haven't primed our minds to be ready to sort of live through these challenges and stresses for eight years, then our odds of success are vanishingly smaller. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I saw this play out on Everest particularly. There were maybe three meaningful things that sort of reinforced this key point over and over and over again. Um, the first is, and, and these numbers aren't exactly right, but they're directionally correct. There were about 30 of us that went over to Mount Everest in my group. I, I went with a, an amazing group um, called International Mountain Guides IMG. Um, and, and I was fortunate enough to go with 30 amazing climbers. And um, the interesting part of that was that about 19 of the 30 ended up leaving the climb prior to summit day. Okay. And it was, it was largely like people would leave on rest days. People would leave after we got to base camp and it was, it was not really not being ready, not being prepared for the emotional grind of being away from friends, being away from family, being away from your life and everything else. Um, of, of the 11 of us that made it to summit day, 10 of the 11 actually ended up successfully summiting and getting down safely and everything else. And so what I found fascinating there was when you think of summit day on Mount Everest, what oftentimes people think of is the single hardest thing in the world, right? Or at least somewhere on the list of like hardest things there is in the world to do. Um, we had like a 90% success rate. And yet when you think of like grinding through day by day at base camp, eating crappy food and like living on Wi-Fi that's not very good. Um, and and I'm, I'm exaggerating the point a little bit, but not all that much. Like that was when people were like, you know what? I'm sick of this, man. I'm going home. Mm -hmm. Now that really came to a point with me because I really never came close to quitting on summit day. I almost got turned around because I didn't have enough oxygen and that's a different story, <laughs> but, but I never came close to quitting. And, and, and contrast that with my first time up to camp three when I wasn't prepared. I wasn't, um, I wasn't mentally prepared for the grind that was ahead. Mm -hmm. um, I, I ended up having, I forgot my water bottle. I got out of camp late. I was running about an hour behind the rest of my team. And I started feeling like a failure. I, I made it into Camp 3 safely, um, but, but I felt like I wasn't living up to my own expectations, and, and I felt like a failure. And I almost quit after that Camp 3 experience. I, I was actually texting with my satellite communicator um, back to my, my then-girlfriend, now wife, and saying, can you help me get a plane home? I just, I, I don't think I, did, I belong up here. Now, my guides can't, you know, frankly talked me out of it and said, no, Eric, like, like you did fine. You were within the window of where you needed to be. But I was really this close to throwing away 10 years of preparation and about $75,000 of, of investment that I'd made to go try and climb that mountain because this negative voice in inside of me was telling me that I wasn't good enough. But the mm -hmm. final story to reinforce that, and, and the one that um, for me is the most important and the most poignant, and, and really probably the thing that I remember most from, from my trip to Everest was after I had summited successfully. 
And, and once again, I had a herniated disc. I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm moving slower than I expected to be. I'm about an hour and a half behind kind of my expected time, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm about an hour behind the rest of my group. And so on the way down from the top, now keep in mind, I've just summited Mount Everest. I'm safe. Like there is no question of whether, really no, no reasonable question of whether I'm going to get back alive and safe and everything else. Um, but I was behind my goal time. And I knew that by being behind my goal time, I was unlikely to hit my stretch goal. So I wanted to get all the way back down to camp two, which is more comfortable and, and you know, just a nicer place to hang out. Um, and I knew I wasn't going to do that. It was becoming increasingly obvious that, that I was going to have to spend a night at camp four, uh, another night at camp four. And excuse me. So as I'm going through this mental process, as I'm repelling down what's known as the triangle phase, I'm just beating myself up. And I'm going, Eric, why are you so slow? How come everybody else who summited is able to make it down? I keep in mind something like 10% of people summit ever successfully on the first try. But all I can do is criticize myself. And and I think as entrepreneurs, we experience this. No matter, you know, we we may close a round of financing and then all we do is criticize ourselves because it wasn't at a high enough valuation or we didn't get the investor we wanted or, or, you know, something else, right? Um, And and, and it, it finally, finally, I stopped. And for the first time in my life, I kind of examined that voice. And I literally stopped while I was rappelling down the triangle face. And, and I, I don't know, maybe people thought I was a madman, like talking to myself. But like, <laughs> I actually interrogated that voice. And I said, you know, like voice of negativity. If you're not going to be happy with yourself on the day that you've literally summited Mount Everest, when are you ever going to be happy? Like, when are you ever going to be satisfied? When are you ever going to be able to look in the mirror and say, you did a good job, like that was enough. And, and like, that was just, it was not an experience that I'd had. And, and what I realized was from that experience is it's not about climbing Mount Everest, right? And this stuff sounds a little cliche, but it's so true when you realize it. It's not about climbing Mount Everest. It's not about, it, it, you know, you can literally get to the top of the world and still not silence that voice of negativity that can drive you in very unhealthy directions. Yeah. I remember you shared with me, we, we talked through that spotty Wi-Fi when Eric was in base camp and those first few days in base camp, when you're kind of comparing yourself physically, like in terms of physical shape and physical experience with other folks on the mountain, you put yourself in what the, the bottom quarter, maybe certainly the bottom half compared to other folks that you met. Right. Yeah, definitely the bottom half. Definitely um, bottom it, half. it was, it was, uh, probably about probably between the, probably not quite in the bottom quarter, but mm-hmm. between the bottom half and, and, and sort of in that third quartile. So you felt some of that doubt walking in day one. You're looking around at your peers. You're thinking like these people have done. I mean, what are some of their accomplishments? They're reading them yeah. out and you're saying to yourself like, oh crap, like, these are my peers, right? Yeah, there, there's this first night when you're sitting around getting to know everybody, drinking beer and, and you know, it's like, well, what have you climbed? What have you climbed, right? And there's this kind of like, let's call it a manhood measuring contest of like, what amazing thing have you done? And, you know, I'm, I'm looking around at some of these guys and I mean, these guys are just shredded, Aaron. You, you've met some of the guys that, that I climbed with, guys like Brooke that, you know, I mean, just you know, they looked like they ought to be in a men's, men's fitness magazine. Right. And, um, you know, I've never had that physique. And, uh, and, 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 and so we're sitting there talking and these guys are rattling off, you know, all kinds of esoteric and crazy mountains. They're talking about, you know, summiting solo on some of the world's most amazing peaks. And, and, I, you know, having spent time above 8,000 meters, many of them. And, and, you know, like I had, I had, um, what would generously be described, I think, as a mainstream climbing resume. Like I climbed Aconcagua, which was cool. And like, I'd done a good job with it. And I climbed Kilimanjaro and like, I sort of peaked bagged um, some of, some of the, uh, the seven summits. And, and, you know, I'd spent, Aaron and I spent a fair bit of time out in the mountains together. 
Um, so it's, it's not like I was a stranger to the mountains and I didn't feel totally out of place, but there were definitely those moments where that self-doubt creeps in. Um, and, and you're sitting there listening to all these people and you're going, man, I don't, I don't measure up to any of these guys. And, and you know, it was very similar. I mean, I think we've probably all had those moments when we've been at entrepreneurial networking events and it's like, oh, well, I'm trying to decide between my term sheet from Andreessen Horowitz and Sequoia. And like, I'm not really sure which one I'm, I'm going to take. Eric, how do you feel about that? And, you know, and, and <laughs> I'm sitting here going, yeah, man, like, I don't think any VCs are even going to take my call. Um, and, and none of them want a damn thing to do with me. And, and, and so it's, it's one of the things I, I think that is a consistent part of that journey is there's like those moments when you're looking around at everybody else and saying, man, I do not measure up to those people. Mm -hmm. um, and then what you hope is if you keep persevering and if, if you build the resilience, as, as you and I have talked about, Aaron, you build, that, you build enough of that resilience, you stay in the game long enough what you find is then all of a sudden you start to become one of those people, right? So like I had this kind of like mainstream pedestrian climbing resume and, you know, now here I am with a picture of Mount Everest in my background, you know, being, being invited to come talk to people about that. Right. And, and so, so that dynamic can, can flip on its head pretty quickly. Yeah. I love that. So there are just mountains of books available to entrepreneurs. See how we did that? Mountains of books, That's good integration <laughs> and messaging there. Uh, many of us have experienced the conferences and seminars that encourage us to hustle harder, keep grinding, sleep on the couch in your office. Yeah. My co-founder at one time lived in my office for three months. So things like that, right? These glorified things. You've been at this a long time through many companies, a part of the entrepreneur community, and you share with me that you think most of the advice out there is misguided. So what do you think is the effect of the entrepreneurship advice industry? What do you think would be better or more helpful for entrepreneurs that are just getting started? Yeah. And when we talk about the entrepreneurship advice industry, um, you know, j just to frame it and put some specificity around it, it's, I think about a $16 billion industry um, that I'm, I'm not quoting from my talking points, but it's growing at something like 15% year over year. So, you know, you go back to the old, uh, you go back to the old dead, uh, sorry, gold rush analogies. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't usually the people mining for gold. It was usually the people selling the pickaxes and the shovels getting rich, right? Mm -hmm. um, if entrepreneurs are the gold miners of, of this century, it's, I don't know, you know, some entrepreneurs are clearly getting rich. Um, the median entrepreneur is not. Um, the median person in the entrepreneurial advice industry, again, this is a $16 billion industry growing very, very quickly. The unfortunate reality of all of these books, all of these um, webinars, of, of which, you know, let's be honest, we are squarely a part of this, right? Like we are, we would clearly be categorized as part of this industry and, and things mm -hmm. that, you know, Founders First, the book that I'm writing, et cetera. Um, the unfortunate reality is that statistics show, and there are studies that back this up, that the more of the entrepreneurial advice industry that entrepreneurs can uh, consume, the less successful those entrepreneurs are. Wow. So qualitatively, I, you know, we've all sat through these things. There's a lot of bad advice. Quantitatively, it's been proven. And, and so that, that begs the question, why? And, and I think there's more research to be done with it. Um, but, but there are two things that I think fundamentally drive the bad advice. So there's lots of bad advice. Things like, hey, what makes you successful? Oh, just hustle harder, just grind harder, you know, just keep working harder. And, and the reality is that, that because of the survivorship bias, like nobody, nobody uh, invites the 90% of entrepreneurs that fail to come talk to these, to these conferences, right? I, I oftentimes hold myself up as the biggest entrepreneurial failure that's ever invited onto any of the, Aaron, if, if we were to look at all of your guests, I, I would almost be certain to say that I'm the biggest failure of any of the guests that you're probably going to have on your podcast. Um, or, or on the video cast. Um, 
and 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 so there's this tremendous survivorship bias, which is that um, that that you know, while the entrepreneurs that are on there, I think, are typically speaking honestly about what their experience has been, like they're not lying to their audiences. The lie is in the fact that only the most successful are chosen. And then there's a flip side to this. So, so, so the entrepreneurs that are chosen to speak are the ones for whom the volatility, the risk, no matter what they did, it all worked out in the end, right? Mm-hmm. The other people that are invited to talk to entrepreneurs, by and large, are reporters about the, in the entrepreneurial community and most commonly venture capitalists. Why are VCs invited to talk to entrepreneurs? Because entrepreneurs want VC money. And so we figure that if we show up and we listen to VCs talk, then we'll figure out how to go pitch VCs in a way that they'll give us money, right? So it makes total sense. It's like having ladies night at a bar, right? Mm -hmm. You you get a few of them in there and then all of a sudden the dudes show up in droves to sit and listen and say, how do I, how do I figure out how to make a match here? Um, The, the unfortunate reality about venture capitalists giving entrepreneurs advice is that VCs thrive on volatility. They thrive on risk. They have a bunch of hedges. So if, if their companies fail, look, they get paid first by the money that they raise from their limited partners. If their companies fail, their kids are not worried about what school they're going to. That VC is still making money. Might be making less, but he's still making money. Mm-hmm. They also are hedged because they've got a portfolio of opportunities. Most entrepreneurs are betting their entire net worth on one company. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, and so there's this conflict, which is that VCs love volatility. Now they'll tell entrepreneurs our outcomes are aligned and that's true to a point. The VC does want the entrepreneur to be successful because they also want to be successful. But what they really want is lots of volatility in their portfolio because the idea then becomes, um, as long as there's lots of volatility, a couple of these companies will strike it big. The 80% of companies that will fail with this strategy, and we write them off, who cares? They go to zero. But the ones that succeed, succeed big. Right. And so in any other industry where you have an 80% failure rate, we would look at the, the processes, we would look at the example, we would, we would look at, it, at the, the people that are speaking, we would look at everything about it, and we would re-examine it from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And for some reason in the world of venture-backed companies, we have an 80% failure rate, and we go, oh yeah, no, that's cool, like that's no big deal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the reality is that there is this tremendous misalignment between the people that give entrepreneurs advice and what is actually good advice for the entrepreneur. And so as a result, we as entrepreneurs end up filling our brains with these notions. There's all these stories that tell us things like, you know, real entrepreneurs, people that are really all in, there's no amount of risk that they won't take on. Mm-hmm. Even if it literally means things like, like taking out a second mortgage on my home, even if it means putting up my kid's college fund, even if it means literally being thrown out of my house and sleeping in a public bathroom, in the case of, of one of my favorite movies, The Pursuit of Happiness, um, there is no amount of risk that I should not be willing to take on if I'm all in and if I'm a real entrepreneur, right? And I'm using this in, in air quotes. Um, and, and, and VCs are all too happy to reaffirm this advice. Reporters are all too happy to reaffirm this advice because they want to see the huge successes. And even if it's a you know, glaring failure, hey, that drives page views too. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think there is this structural dynamic of who gives entrepreneurs advice that leads to really bad advice because it's aligned with the, with, with the incentives of the advice givers, mm-hmm. not the advice receivers. 
And what ends up happening is lots of entrepreneurs internalize this really bad advice. They take on more and more risk. They do it in a way that's not necessarily thoughtful. And it leads to really bad outcomes. It leads to 80% of companies failing. It leads to entrepreneurs having uh, twice the rate of suicidality, tragically, three times the rate of substance abuse of, of the general population. It leads to absolutely horrific outcomes because we internalize all this bad advice. Mm-hmm. So what does that feel like? You, you're a serial entrepreneur. You've been this, through this so many times. Like that volatility in the moment, what is that experience like? What does that feel like? As a, I mean, you raise capital in several of your companies, right? So you've had investors with, with this set of incentives that you've talked about. You've experienced this ride from the entrepreneur side. What's it, what's it feel like? Yeah, so, so there's, this, um, there's this thing that happens, which is that over time, um, you, you become increasingly like your, your whole body, your whole self, your entire humanity becomes consumed in your company. So, so the short answer to, to your question, Aaron, and then I'm going to expand on it. Mm-hmm. What does it feel like? To me, it felt joyless. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really the, the best word that I could use for it. Um, I, I felt like I had lost the capacity to feel joy when the company was struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even when it wasn't in some cases. And, and the reason it took me a long time to figure out why I felt this way, because I'm generally a pretty happy and optimistic person. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there were times when, when I personally thought about like, man, if, if I just stepped in front of this L train that was coming in, like I wouldn't have to think about shouldering this burden. It felt like a, felt like a weight on my shoulders, which again is maybe a little bit cliche, but it's the only way that I can really think of to describe it, like a literal physical weight around my being. Mm-hmm. And, and I've talked to a number of entrepreneurs and I work with a number of entrepreneurs that, that, have told me the same thing and, and that they feel the exact same way. And, and you get to this point where you are so consumed with the fact that your loved ones, your friends, your family, investors you look up to, p- pillars of the community have invested literal money as well as time in your success. And, and your entire humanity becomes consumed in this idea that I'm the founder and CEO. Like I, I, I got to the point it felt weird to introduce myself as Eric Severinghouse if I didn't have founder and CEO attached to like the end of my name. It was literally that intertwined in, in my being. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember very vividly this idea of, of like when my company was struggling, when I was afraid I wouldn't be able to make payroll, when I was afraid I was going to lose all of the money that, that friends and family had invested in me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember like the idea that like I could be happy on some other dimension. Like if I was out skiing and I just skied an amazing line mm-hmm. and, and, you know, just had an awesome day on the slopes, right? There would be like this moment that would be like, Eric, that was a great day. That was so much fun. And then there would be the other voice in the other ear that would say, yeah, dummy, but your company is about to fail and you're about to be exposed as a fraud and, and your, your friends and family are going to know that you're worthless and the whole community is going to know that you failed in what you set out to do. Mm. And so I'm glad you had a good day skiing, you lazy bum, mm. but like, shouldn't you have been working because you're a friggin' failure. Mm-hmm. And the whole world's going to know. And, and, and that, same, that same voice would remind me of that anytime I was happy, even for just a few minutes. It was like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're happy, idiot, mm-hmm. you know, lazy. Um, you know, and, and, and like, I hope you enjoyed that moment of joy because really you should have been working. And, and, and this, this like moment of happiness that you've allowed yourself is an indulgence that you really don't even deserve. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, you internalize this over days and weeks and years. Um, and, and it gets to the point that you literally get out of the habit of feeling happy. Um, you, you sort of lose this ability to actually enjoy the journey. 
by the way, all of this is associated with massively negative outcomes. It leads to poor decision-making like, 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 you know, it's not just a human happiness story. It's also an effectiveness as an entrepreneur um, story, but, but that's, that's just, that is, I think that the tragedy of entrepreneurship is that so often we answer this call to adventure. We, we sort of go do this thing that we feel in our core that the, that the, you know, the universe or the good Lord or however we want to contextualize it, put us on this earth to go do this. Mm-hmm. And then we get at some point into the journey and, and we literally um, refuse to acknowledge any of the days that we're living on that journey. Um, while we fantasize about an exit that might eventually take this weight off of our shoulders. And it, it really, you know, it's, it's a tragedy from the financial outcomes of companies and it's a tragedy from the human outcome of the entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also a tragedy because we rely on entrepreneurs to change the world and invent things and be innovative and take concepts that are researched themselves or elsewhere and bring them into commercial products that can change the world, that can fix our environment and fix human kindness deficits and all these things that we need. Right. And those, when those things don't come out, uh, we're lesser for it. No, you're exactly right. And, and I think there's, there's two pieces of it. Number one is the potential for, for companies, ideas, concepts, things that can move the world forward that fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's its own problem. The other piece, and this is the thing that, that we don't even know, is all of the innovations that don't happen because people, aren't, because people know about the difficulty of this journey, and mm-hmm. so they don't even try. If you look at macro trends from the Kauffman Foundation and other folks, entrepreneurship is down. Business formation is down. Like, like people who are interested in starting new companies is down. For all, for all the entrepreneur advice industry and the $16 billion navel gazing that, that we all sort of do for all the incubators and all the entrepreneurial programs at, at universities and such, like we're innovating less. And that innovation is less successful than it's been throughout history. And particularly now, if you put us in the context of, you know, I, I live in Chicago, Illinois, where everybody looks back to the 1871 Chicago fire and, and, you know, the fact that it burned down large swaths of the city and it led to architectural revolutions like the skyscraper and, and a variety of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're living through a, a flameless fire right now. Um, I, I think something like 4,000 businesses in Chicago um, have shut down never to return uh, in the last 60 days. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that, that, that is obviously being played out across the world right now in, in this world of COVID. And yeah. so, you know, there's no exaggeration to say that, that this is a time unlike any other mm-hmm. as, as we try to figure, you know, find our way as a society through what we're going through right this minute. And then as we think about the future that we're going to need to navigate, um, it, you know, I, there's no exaggeration to say that, like, we have to figure out how to innovate. Uh, otherwise, you know, the, the, the trajectory of the next generation, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be very problematic. Yeah. 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 I'm glad you're shining a light on that. I think it's a a huge, um, you know, hopefully a, a micro trend around COVID, but we don't know what the world's going to look like after that. Right. <laughs> no. and, and, and whether or not COVID is a micro trend and, and, you know, here's hoping, right. Yeah. What we know is that carbon in the atmosphere is not a micro trend. Yep. We know that, you know, ethnic sectarianism and nationalism, uh, you know, we know that, that, that less transparency, less freedom of the press, yeah. You know, now, now whether they're macro over the next hundred years, you know, they've certainly been moving in the wrong direction. If you look at indices across the board around freedom of people, 
if we look at things like voting rights, if we things that look at things like freedom of the press, you know, there are a number of different indices, uh, Gini coefficient around inequality. Mm-hmm. If we look at so many of these trends over the last, you know, 10 years, um, so many of them have been moving in the wrong direction in certain ways. And, and I'm an optimist by nature. I'm, I'm a mm-hmm. huge believer that, that, there, are, that there, there will be things that will move them back in the right direction. I don't think there's a better time in human history to have been born than like right now or, or when we were born. Yeah. Um, but, but it doesn't, it, what's become clear to me over the last five or, or, or so years, I guess, is that like that doesn't happen naturally. As, as Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think to some extent, like the only thing necessary for society to stagnate is for entrepreneurs not to innovate. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I think it's a call to us to figure out how to continue to innovate, but then also to re-examine the way that we innovate, to do it in a way that's more effective, more efficient, uh, more thoughtful, mm-hmm. um, you know, more aware of things like inequality and, 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 and racial injustice and things like that. Um, and that ultimately, uh, you know, also, and, and this is why I'm so excited you're leading this charge, Aaron, that, that, that it is more sustainable for the entrepreneur and the person doing it. Yeah. Because starting a company shouldn't come with this like false dichotomy that you can't start a company and have a family. You can't start a company and be happy. You can't start a, a company and have a fulfilled life. I think it's just the opposite, but we've internalized too many of these notions. Yeah. So if people hear this message and take action with what you're sharing, it can have a huge impact, right? I think, I think about these, like these are the mountains for everyone else to climb that you've listed. These are the big problems that are out there in the world. And we've got to make sure that people who are running a company now and maybe it isn't going well and they have the opportunity to change something else and jump into one of these mountain climbs in the future. Or to your point, all the people that aren't jumping out of what they're doing are being brave enough to start a company. Um, I you know, think many of us are maybe delusional enough to start a company, but let's call it brave to start a company when armed with the correct tools and the correct knowledge about what's to come. Um, if they don't, that's, that's a huge deficit for the world. So, yeah, yeah. so this has been incredible. Um, we're going to take a few questions from uh, audience members here. I see oh, a couple things coming in, but first, I think we'd all love to know, how do you get ready to climb Mount Everest? Like, how long does it take to prepare? You said 10 years earlier, like 10 years of where you want to a stair climber for 10 years? How long does it take? Um, I, the pictures just don't do it justice. Like you've been there. What's it like? Yeah, I, you know, pictures never do it justice. I will say I think the videos do a reasonably good job of, of showing how, how challenging it is. Um, one, National Geographic just came out with, with a recent video on Everest a, a couple of weeks ago. I, I highly encourage people to check out if you're interested in this kind of thing. My favorite part of the video is it starts off, and these guys are accomplished mountaineers that are going to do this scientific thing on Everest. And, um, and, and they're like, oh, huh, huh, Everest, it's a hike uphill, it's no big deal, it's like the tourist mountain. And, and there's this perception, I think, largely born of like that, that photo that came out you know, a couple of years ago of the line yeah. of the summit and things like that. That like, I don't know, it's like Disney World, but it's a little harder to breathe. <laughs> um, nothing could be further from the truth. And my favorite thing about this National Geographic expedition that they just recently showed is all these accomplished mountaineers get up to that altitude and they're just like, holy shit, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, you know, it, it, it really is. Um, it, it, Aaron, you know, you and I took the hike to base camp 10 years ago, right? And um, for anybody that doesn't know, Aaron inspired me, actually. It's, it's, he's really, in many ways, the reason that this journey happened. Um, 10 years ago, Aaron inspired me to go with him uh, to hike up to base camp. And, uh, and, and we looked at the mountain, 
And, and, and I said, you know, I think I can climb this thing in seven years. And so I actually took this picture of me like doing this, right? And I was like, this, <laughs> this thing to myself saying, I'm going to be ready to go back and I'm going to go back in seven years. And I had no idea what that meant. Even the hike to base camp was very challenging for us. Um, and, 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 you know, so what I realized was I needed to, to learn. I, I needed to get myself in shape. Um, I'd never probably run more than a couple miles. And so I decided I was going to go figure out how to do an Ironman triathlon because <laughs> the way to get in cardiovascular shape um, but with a lot less danger than doing it in the mountains, right? I needed to learn high altitude skills. I needed to learn mountaineering skills. I needed to learn technical climbing skills. I needed to, uh, I, I also felt very strongly that, um, you know, there, there are groups of people that go to Everest that may or may not really um, be ready for the mountain. They may or may not, you know, quote unquote, deserve to be on the mountain. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to feel very much like I deserved to be there. Um, and it, it didn't mean that I still wasn't intimidated when I got there both by the mountain and the other people. Um, but, but I wanted very badly to do that. So, so how did I prepare? It was 10 years. It was a lot of physical. It was a lot of, of all that other kind of stuff. The other thing that I realized as I was getting ready to go, um, I, I read a book called Deep Survival. And, and it's by a guy by the name of Lawrence Gonzalez. It's an amazing book. And it talks about resilience and, and the mentality that leads to who survives and, and who dies in survival situations. And it kind of starts with this interesting juxtaposition of like, Somewhere in the woods, like this like troop of Girl Scouts got lost and they ended up making it out just fine. I'm butchering the story a little bit, but, but they ended up making it out just fine. And then like in like a similar place in the woods, a Navy SEAL gets lost and the Navy SEAL dies. Hmm. It's like, what in the world happens where like this Navy SEAL doesn't make it out and these Girl Scouts do? And, and so it goes through and it analyzes and it, 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 there, there's this tremendous literature around what it is to survive. And I've seen this now in the context of children who suffer abuse. I've seen it in the context of, of the Holocaust mm -hmm. um, and who survived the Holocaust. And, you know, there's a lot of luck. There's a lot of exogenous factors at play. But, but the thing that's controllable and, and the most important controllable factor that leads to survival in these situations is the mindset, the mentality of the person who's thrust into it. And mm -hmm. so in addition to all the physical training, um, I, I actually put myself through a mental training regimen. It included things like visualizing success. It included things like meditating. It included um, trying to put my mind into the situation of what would go wrong and how I would respond when it did go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the thing that I'll say is um, I, I was much less accomplished and certainly less physically fit than many, many people who don't make it up Everest mm -hmm. ever or on their first try. And I, you know, I, I, there, there is no empirical way that you could look at my physical fitness or my climbing regimen and you could say, um, yeah, that, this guy was the guy that you would bet on to make it up. Mm -hmm. The thing that I think I took over there that ended up leading to the success was the real focus on the mental side. Mm -hmm. And I think it made a huge difference in terms of ultimately persevering. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what another incredible thing to mention here, I, I don't know if you know the stats on this, but um, you know, everybody who doesn't know this and can't see it from Eric's, you know, headshot from the chest up here. This Eric is six foot five, as he says in his book, a 250 pound mountain climber, <laughs> climbed Mount Everest. I would imagine there were a lot of, uh, of even men that were probably under 150 in your climbing crew. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's certainly not the physiology. I mean, there are exceptions for sure, but I think I was the biggest dude there. Uh -huh. You ever thought about like, you know, like the, the, the calculation of like energy, right? So like how much energy it took you versus everybody else? I mean, there's a, there's a different scale I, I, there. I have actually done that analysis uh, <laughs> you have, for, okay. for Ironman triathlon. And let me yeah, tell you, okay. it's a lot more because in Ironman, 
you actually have something called the Clydesdales, which is like basically the big fat dudes, right? <laughs> um, and so, so like when, at least when I race with Ironman, I have this like Clydesdale, I've got this C on me and I can only compete against the other Clydesdales, right? <laughs> when you're climbing Everest, like there's no C. Um, there's none of that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I see that like when I do a mountain bike ride and I look on Strava, the whole reason why I have paid for the premium version of Strava is because I can see my time ranked against yeah. other people my weight. <laughs> yep. 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 If I look against everybody, it's, it's miserably sad. <laughs> but if you I know, pay for the upgraded and see just the people over 225, it's like, I'm actually pretty fast. <laughs> I'm the top third. <laughs> pretty good shape. I love that. The other thing that I always wanted to do is I wanted to be able to benchmark myself against other people coming from sea level. Yeah. Because, like the advantage I had coming from Chicago is the cold didn't bother me. I was yeah. I was never really worried about the cold. Um, but on the other hand, like there's all these people that live at, you know, 12,000 feet or whatever. And uh, I always felt like I had to climb much more mountain than they did. I love that. All right. Awesome. Questions are flowing in here. So Anthony asked, um, how did your, um, or how did you exit your negative mindset when you were an entrepreneur? You talked about that voice coming on the triangle face on Everest. I mean, it's hard to squash this voice, right? We hear people talk in the founders first community about this voice a lot, that negative self-talk I see come up a ton. So how did you break out of it? Or is there a way that we yeah. can break out of it? Yeah, yeah, I think there are a few key things. Um, the, the first thing that, that I had to learn was to recognize it. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I think for a while, the idea that there were multiple different voices in my head um, was like, it just wasn't something that I was willing to acknowledge. Um, it, it felt like maybe it meant that I was crazy. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, if, if you do a bunch of research in, into neurobiology, you'll find that, like, actually, it's been proven, like, there are multiple different voices in your head, and they're coming from different places, and, like, there's evolutionary reasons for them, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so a little bit of it w is learning to recognize the voice. The, the way, for me, the, 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 there's, there was a, a couple things. The first was a peer group of other entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. and there are groups like YPO, y, uh, EO, uh, Vistage. Um, I had one that was like a bootleg group. We didn't pay anybody, but it was um, a, a group of about 10 of us on, uh, and, and we met uh, every six weeks. And, and for me, that was so important because when I heard other entrepreneurs that I really respected talk about how they felt the same way, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden I looked at them and I went, well, that's an irrational thought. Like, I know you, I know you're a badass <laughs> and, and you're telling me you feel like a failure. And that doesn't make any sense because like I can clearly look at you and I can see that, that you're not a failure. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so that led me to be able to pull myself out of my own thinking a little bit and go, huh, if that's how I feel about him and him and her and her and him and her, then maybe, maybe like that's, that also holds true for me. Maybe I'm not the failure that, that I'm telling myself. that I am. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I wish I had gone to therapy more. Uh, I, I am a big believer in this now. At, at the time that I was an entrepreneur, I thought therapy was for people that were sick. Um, I now, I, I thought that you had to have like a mental illness, I would have described it. I thought it was, it was for people that were not me. Um, as, as somebody who goes to therapy on a weekly basis now, I will say that like I use my therapist as a mental resilience coach. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's it, the example that I now use is like, Hey, Michael Jordan was a damn good basketball player. It didn't mean that he didn't have a coaching staff to, you know, help him on that journey. Right. And, um, and, and it didn't mean that that wasn't important. And, and, uh, you know, I very much feel the same way about the idea of a therapist. Um, the, the other thing that, uh, that I think was so important was 
talking to entrepreneurs that failed that I respected, hmm. talking to loved ones about the idea of failure. Hmm. And it, because prior to me having explicit conversations about I might fail, failure to me, like again, if, if my humanity was equated with sort of the balance sheet of my company, Mm -hmm. then failure felt like death. It felt like this abyss that I could never recover from. This thing that like, if I did it, like literally it probably went through my mind that like Aaron Houghton might not ever talk to me again. Mm -hmm. And like other friends and family and like people that I knew and cared about would like just view me, you know, especially successful entrepreneurs and guys that made it, right? Like, like how would they look at a guy like me that didn't return capital to my shareholders and that failed? Mm -hmm. And and what I realized talking to other entrepreneurs that failed and then going through failure myself is like, it ain't so bad. I'm not going to say it's fun. I'm not one of these like fail porn guys that loves to get out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fail, fail, fail. Um, it's, it's not like, it's not a ton of fun, um, but it wasn't nearly as bad as, as, as I feared that it would be. So, so whatever that thing, going back to the original question, whatever that negative thing that's going around in your mind is, if you can isolate it, and if you can talk about it, and if you can acknowledge it, and, and if you can do those sorts of things, you'll very quickly realize that it loses its power to control you. It's only when you're scared of it, when you try to resist it, and when you try to avoid it, um, that, that, that it ends up sort of taking over you, and you end up in these spin cycles that you can't get out of. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, Eric shared a story with me recently about sitting down with a founder who had failed, his company had failed in the time you were going through your darkest days at, at Simple Relevance. And he starts kind of, you know, you're sitting down with him to kind of like be his supportive friend and just hear the doom and gloom. And then you find out he's got a six figure job. He's making money every month. He's like, started working out again. He's got time for himself or whatever. And you're looking at him going, yeah, failure looks great actually, <laughs> at least in that specific case. It's exactly right. And, and I will tell you the best days of my life have been post entrepreneurial failure. Mm -hmm. I don't think because I failed necessarily, but I, I think it's because a lot of the journey led me to, to then find myself in a way um, that, that, that I could figure out how to acknowledge that voice. It's not to say that I still don't hear it, but, and it's not to say that every once in a while I still don't get thrown onto a spin cycle. But, mm -hmm. but at least now I, I can start to recognize when it's putting me on tilt. I can start to recognize when I'm off my game and I can talk to my wife about it. I can go talk to my therapist about it, right? And I don't have to pretend that I'm something I'm not. Like, I don't have to pretend to my wife that I'm some, you know, that, that I'm some superhuman guy that like never feels anxiety, never feels dread, is never frustrated, is never sad, is never depressed, is never anxious, right? Um, and, and so like there's a whole bunch of, and that's a big part of why I wrote the anti-biography too, is because when I get to get in front of fine people like all of you, like I don't want to be worried that if I tell you all the good parts and then you realize all the places that I've failed, then all of a sudden you're gonna be like, oh, that guy's lying. He's a bullshit or, or whatever, whatever. And so, so just by acknowledging it and, and just getting it out there and saying, here's all the bad stuff about me. And, and here's the things that I worry about. Mm -hmm. um, again, what I find is all that stuff loses its power. over me. Yeah. It sort of disarms it. A hundred percent. I heard from someone maybe a couple years ago that um, they call, it was a very successful entrepreneur and he was recommending therapy for every entrepreneur as well. Even if you don't feel like you need it to get in front of it, it builds resilience, it builds tools. And he described it as hiring an emotional coach. And he talked about the people and, and tools and systems that you need around you as an entrepreneur. And you need controller, you need someone to lead marketing, you need somebody to lead ops, you need somebody to lead development or R&D. And what you need personally, and he was going through this list and he's like, you need an emotional coach. 
And so for anybody out there that's afraid of this or kind of stigmatized around this word of, you know, working with a therapist, then don't just work with, look, search for therapists in your area and hire one of them as your emotional coach instead. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's literally what I do. I call mine a mental resilience guru that yeah. insurance just happens to pay for. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, which is wonderful. And, and here's the other way that I would contextualize it. I don't think there is any greater um, determinant of entrepreneurial success other than luck than the, the mind of the entrepreneur. When you really think about it, like the, entre the, the company that we are creating is this thing that we have sort of conjured out of our mind literally from nothing, brought mm -hmm. into the world and tried to create. It is really up to us as the entrepreneur, along with our supporting cast and everything else, to make that successful. And it's our decision making. It, it's our, literally our mind that's making these decisions that is the single greatest determinant of whether or not this thing's gonna be successful. And so any investment that you can make to optimize your mental state, to give you better chances of making better decisions, has a huge return on investment in terms of the trajectory for your company. Yeah, I love that. And your quote earlier. I, I think it's the only rational thing to do. Like, like once I finally realized it, it was like, man, like I'm an idiot. Any hour that I'm not investing and trying to optimize my decision-making, trying to optimize my mental resilience, like hours that I'm not spending on this are hours that are wasted, you know, not the opposite. Yeah, I love that. And your, your quote earlier, you said the, what is it? The, the tools of carpentry don't really come into play if the carpenter is having a panic attack or a mental breakdown. Exactly it, right. It doesn't matter how skilled and talented we actually are. These things can derail us and cause us to make bad decisions in moments where our otherwise capable self would have made a, a better decision, let's say. And, and as we know, that, that can have a huge impact. All right. Yeah, and so, out of that $16 billion entrepreneurial advice industry, I think about 15.999 billion of it has nothing to do with trying to assist the mental state, the decision-making, you know, it, 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 focusing on that most important thing, which is the mind of the entrepreneur. And, and that's why, you know, the, 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 the $16 billion industry talks about everything other than that. Yeah. I think that's so true. And that's why you're writing this book. And that's why we built Founders First System, because like we need tools as entrepreneurs. We need a plan. We need a guidebook who, to help us. Um, that is a perfect tee up for Luke's question. So I got excited and asked you a bunch of questions and didn't go back to my audience here, but we've got a couple awesome ones here. So let's uh, see if we can get a couple of these in here before we run out of time. So Luke asked a great question, which is, um, I know you mentioned that some advice can be counterproductive. On that note, how would you recommend finding the right person to get advice from that might be truly beneficial? Like, how do we have a filter as an entrepreneur to filter out the $15.99 billion that's giving us bad advice so we can get the good advice? Yeah, I, I think that's such a great question. Um, but by the way, let me just say, if we're not getting to all the questions, I am more than happy to answer more in writing. If you guys want to put them in the Founders First community, I'm happy to do like an after hours. Um, and, and, you know, right. answer as many of these things as I can. Um, yeah, let's absolutely do that. Cause there's going to be a bunch in here. We're going to miss out on. Yeah. yeah awesome. Perfect. Um, so maybe we don't feel quite as much time pressure and I can ramble. Um, <laughs> Luke, I, I think it's a phenomenal question. Here's, and I don't know that I have a perfect answer to it, but, but I, I do have some thoughts on it so far. Um, the first is, I, I think that we as humans, can have a pretty good instinct about people that are talking to us. Are they talking to us because they actually care about us? Or are they talking to us because they either want to make themselves feel good and make themselves feel special? Or are they talking to us because they, um, they've got their own agenda? And the challenge is that I think most of the people out there 
most of the people that are answering questions on stages and most of the people that have some of the amazing, you know, social media profiles and some of this other kind of stuff. And there are exceptions, but I think many of them are either trying to be self-aggrandizing. They're trying to tell you how amazing they are through the, through the context of giving you advice. I'll give you advice, but like, I'm really doing it because I want to tell you how impressive I am. Mm -hmm. um, or they're doing it because they've got their own agenda. They've got their own thing that, that, that they want to do, right? Um, and, and so think about the motives. Think about the why somebody's doing what they're doing and get comfortable with it. The other, the other thing I'll say is um, I'm a huge fan of, of what's called the Lindy principle. And the idea behind this is that the longer that advice has been out there for, like the, the idea behind this is the longer like a book has been sold for, probably the better the wisdom that's in, okay? And, and so the idea behind this is that like, if you go back to things like the Bible, if you go back to things like the Stoics, if you go back to things like Buddhism, right? Um, this stuff's been around, like humans have found value in this stuff for two, three, four, five thousand years. This stuff has survived for a reason because most of it now, there's exceptions, but most of it's pretty darn good. Um, if you think about the latest bestseller or the latest, you know, guy that's sitting on a panel, um, you know, is that going to be around in five years? Is it going to be around in 10 years? Is that still an idea that's going to be worth talking about? And I think many of the ideas that, that are faddish or that are in vogue aren't all that important. And many of the ideas that are really, really important, the concepts that are really, really valuable are the ones that have been around for a long time. The problem is the copyright's expired, so nobody makes any friggin' money by selling them to you. <laughs> and so, so, you know, nobody really gives a shit about promoting them. Like, nobody's getting paid when you buy uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, and yet it's probably as good of entrepreneurial advice book as has ever existed. You mentioned some of those, those old practices. There's a lot of practices that come out of these things, right? Like meditation and comes out of Buddhism and uh, yoga comes out of Hinduism, and there's, there's some of these old things that have practices that come out of it. Um, Dan asked the question. What's that? Self-compassion, self something self that we don't talk about yeah. hardly ever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you, you mentioned meditation specifically. So Dan, Dan asked the question, what else, have you, what else do you have in like a daily or weekly routine that yeah. you use as an entrepreneur? Like what have you, what yeah. tool have you pulled in? Yeah, one of the big ones is getting comfortable with stillness. I think a lot about the idea of balance. Um, and, and for entrepreneurs, um, uh, you know, who are naturally biased towards action, Mm -hmm. um, activity is not usually all that hard. Getting comfortable with stillness is usually really, really difficult. Literally things like sleep, um, become really, really difficult. Um, and, and so, you know, for me, uh, five days, I actually keep, I've got it right here on my desk. So I actually keep this journal right here. So I, I try and keep it old school. All right. And literally on this journal, you can see I mark off, well, now my virtual background is going to get in the way. But I mark off literally every day that I either spend 10 minutes meditating or that I journal. Mm -hmm. and, and my goal is to do that five days a week um, to, to where at least five days a week I, I meditate, I journal. Um, and, and the reason for that is, is because I try to stay in the habit of being comfortable with stillness, trying to stay in the habit of, of sort of being comfortable in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, Headspace, Calm. Uh, are, are great apps for this. Yoga Glow is one that I use when, for, um, for certain guided meditations. 
Mm -hmm. Um, again, a big part of it is part of this journal. I have this thing, which is like a feelings wheel. You can just Google feelings wheel and you can find this and I'll literally like interrogate myself and say, what did I feel today? And why did I feel that way? Mm -hmm. Um, just trying to get comfortable with the fact that, um, you know, interrogating the emotions that are going on and then writing them down. Um, one of the things I did for a long time when people would tell me to journal is I would use a journal, like a history book. Like, here's the things that happened today as though I was like writing a memoir in real time. And I never thought that was also, it never helped me much. I always thought it was kind of useless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would journal and then I would stop. I would journal and then I would stop. Um, and, and finally, I had a therapist that turned me on to the idea of you using this feelings wheel and using the journal not to talk about like what happened during the day, but how I felt about it. And like mm-hmm. what was happening in my own mind? Like, where was I getting caught in a spin cycle? Where was I getting angry? Where was I getting depressed? Where was I getting frustrated or pissed off, right? Why was, you know, was I having trouble sleeping? And if so, why? Um, and, and I found that, that, that through the combination of meditation and that journaling, I was able to untie a lot of the knots that had me kind of bounded up. And it takes time. Um, but, but I found it's, it's similar to working out. Um, in the, you know, at first, you don't really want to do it. It's kind of uncomfortable to do it. And then eventually, those days that you don't do it start to feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. So stillness, meditation, finding ways to be calm, yeah. apps to help with it journaling talking to people talk, just talking what yeah do you, you, you share with people t- t- talking from a point of vulnerability having people in your life that you can be honest with whether it's a therapist whether it's a spouse whether it's a friend um whomever it is somebody that you can say man and, and, and i'll tell you that, that probably the thing that i love the most about the therapist is and this is going to go back to it's, it's somebody you can be honest with but somebody you can be selfish with when you talk to them. The thing I love about my therapist is I don't really have to ask my therapist about her day. <laughs> my insurance company pays her so that I don't really have to care about her thoughts. I don't really have to care about her feelings. I don't really have to have like a give and take of like, here's kind of how my day was. Now as a polite conversationalist, I'm going to ask you about your day, mm-hmm. right? Like if I called Aaron up as Aaron's friend and every week when we talk to each other, I just dumped on him about how I was feeling pretty soon he'd feel like this was a one-sided friendship and he wouldn't want to take my call anymore. Right. And so what do I do? Like I mentally ration, how much do I tell him versus how much do I ask him and listen and everything else? Mm-hmm. The great thing about the therapist is like, I go in and I can be totally selfish in terms of what I want to talk to her about. Mm-hmm. I think having those friends, cause you can't have that dynamic completely with other friends or family. You don't want to be selfish in terms of how you treat the friendships. Yeah. But I do think um, having those people that you can say, look, can I be really selfish for a half hour? I really need to talk about me. And here's what I want to dump on you. Um, I, I, I think that's a really, really important dynamic to have. And I think for many of us as entrepreneurs that maybe consider ourselves alpha people, mm-hmm. we're oftentimes much more comfortable caring for others than being cared for. Mm-hmm. We, we might be more comfortable nurturing others than being nurtured, right? Mm-hmm. We, we may, for a variety of reasons, not feel comfortable asking for, for some of that help and, and things like that. Um, identifying and intentionally having those people so, so that you can use them to help yourself work through the things that you need to work through becomes really, really important. Yeah. Incredible. All right. Great questions for everybody. So we're going to run out of time here, but Sue had a question. Brandon had a question. Chloe had a comment. Richard has a question here. So we're going to take these over to the Founders First community. Eric's been so kind to offer to, to answer some things in text there. And, and if for some reason, sorry, I was just going to say, if for some reason you don't want to post the Founders First community, um, if you want to tweet me, it's at E Severinghouse. Um, Founders First is the perfect place to have these conversations and, and we can get other people's opinions. So it's not just me ranting too. Um, but, but I'm also available on social media too. That's perfect. 
All right, Eric, thank you so much for your time and thanks for sharing your amazing story. Um, we're all gonna check out your book, Scale Your Everest. We will announce that when it comes out in the Founders First community so people won't miss it there. We are so grateful for your time and for your advice today. Thanks so much, my friend. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us at Founders First. This conversation continues in the Founders First community. Search Founders First Community in the App Store on your phone to learn how to prioritize your health and wellness to become more successful, get your questions answered by top entrepreneurs, and receive notifications about upcoming shows. Until next time, stay healthy, be at your best, go change the world.